talking this week about pictures of our redemption. In the process of doing that, I've been excited to show you a variety of different ways to look at the scriptures and study the scriptures, and tonight is going to be one of those things as well as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians. If I were to ask you, what is the book of 1 Corinthians about? It would be interesting to go around the room and get everybody's take on that book. I would suppose perhaps one of the more frequent things we would perhaps say the book is about is a church that's a mess, (laughs) a church that has an awful lot of problems. It seems like they're doing a ton of things wrong, and it seems nearly every chapter covers something that they're doing wrong that Paul comes in and says, okay, now concerning this thing, let's get that fixed, and this thing, we'll get that fixed all the way through. And I want us to look at exactly what this book is completely about to get a bigger picture of it and why the Apostle Paul spends time talking about all of those various issues. And it's not just simply, well, the Corinthians wrote a letter to Paul and Paul is now responding and answering a bunch of questions and somehow God thought that was going to be worth being in the canon and so here you go, here's Paul's answer to those things. There's something far bigger at play. Uh, in this book. I mentioned on Sunday morning, sometimes you can find the message of a book by going to the very end of it. Now, don't run to the very end of 1 Corinthians because you won't find it in this one. Uh, But a lot of the books, you'll you'll get to the end and it'll say, now the reason I wrote these things to you is because, or I'm writing these things to you for this very purpose. In fact, 2 Corinthians is that way. In chapter 12, he explains why he wrote the book. And sometimes we read 2 Corinthians and think all Paul is doing is giving a defense of his apostleship. And if you ever thought that's what that book is about, you're wrong. That's why you found that book boring, because we'd read that and go, well, I don't need a defense of Paul's apostleship. I know he's an apostle. That's not what that's about either. Go look at chapter 12, not right now, but another time, and go see what Paul says is the reason why he wrote it. Same thing here is that if he doesn't say at the end, he'll he'll give it to us somewhere then in the beginning. You had in first century times and ancient Near Eastern times a structure of a letter, and by knowing the structure of a letter, that will help you then know what the book is ultimately about. When you read letters in in our Bibles, you will note that you see this same structure over and over again. The first thing that you always read is like Paul, and you go, okay, right out of the gate. In our structure of letters, where do we always put our name? At the end. You would never expect us to put our name at the beginning of a letter. You always wrote at the end. They were a little bit smarter, I suppose. If you want to know who it's from, it's right at the very beginning, rather than having to jump to the end and figure out who wrote this thing. Uh, Paul states it right out of the gate. Here's who the author is. Paul, as well as in verse 1, our brother Sosthenes. So Sosthenes is with Paul as this letter is, is being written. The next thing you would expect is recipients. And that's what verse 2 describes to the church that's found there in, in Corinth, and you see that in all of the letters that are written as well. You have author, recipients, and then there's usually some kind of salutation, grace and peace to be from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very common, almost all of the letters start with that. And that's useful to know. It is interesting to me how many uh, commentaries and writings I will pick up that will make a big deal about how Paul says grace and peace. You know, the first thing on... Paul's mind is always grace and peace. That's just like if the first time I greeted you, what would be the first thing that we usually say to each other? Hi, how you doing, right? That's kind of that 
Grace and peace was a standard operating greeting that you gave to somebody. So for him to say grace and peace, that's just normal introductory familiarity with, with people. So Paul an apostle to the church in Corinth, grace and peace, everything is flowing just as we would expect them in the letter. Then you'll notice in verses 4 through 9, a section of thanksgiving. Almost all of Paul's letters, and I thank God because of some particular aspect or something God has done for the group, something like that. Every letter does that. And when a letter is missing that, it should cause that to make your eyes jump open. And you think of the book that does that. Galatians, Paul to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace, and there is no thanksgiving whatsoever. Paul immediately says, essentially, I can't believe that you've left the gospel for another gospel, which is not a gospel at all. There's a sharpness to it when you skip a formality. When you skip something that's expected as you're reading through a letter and you go past that, you go, wait a minute, where's the thanksgiving section? Paul skips the Thanksgiving and gets right into it. We don't see that here in the Corinthian letter. But notice, once you clear the author and the recipients and the Thanksgiving, then you're able to get to the body of the text. And when you can locate the body of the text and where it begins, usually that beginning couple of sentences tells you what the letter is all about. It would be very similar if we all went back to grade school. And we had that thing called a topic sentence, right? And then if you ever got to college, then college told us, no, we don't do topic sentences, we do a thesis. So you have to state at the very end of the first paragraph, you state, here's what this whole thing is about. Well, that's what's happening right here. So notice what all this is about in chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree... And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Here is the big deal that Paul now initiates to the letter to Corinth. All right, it's Paul with Sosthenes, Church of Corinth, grace and peace. I thank God for you. And now immediately steps into, I appeal to you by the name of Jesus. That you all agree with one another. And that there be no divisions among you. And that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now why does Paul say that? What an interesting way to begin the letter. Why jump in like that? I want you all to agree. And I don't want you to have divisions. I want you to have the same purpose. And the same way of thinking and the same judgment. Notice verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a quarreling among you, my brothers. (laughs) Now, the reason why that should be a staggering to us is we're so used to reading these letters to ourselves. And you remember in those days, everything was read aloud. That's how, if you think about the Ethiopian eunuch who is riding in the chariot, how does Philip know where the eunuch is in Isaiah? Because when you read, you spoke it aloud. We're actually a strange culture that we read to ourselves. It's almost always spoken aloud. 
And when a church received a letter, somebody would stand up and read the letter. So imagine sitting in the congregation in Corinth, and the scroll is unrolled, and here is a letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. Grace and peace to you. I thank God for you. Now I want you all to agree, and there be no divisions among you, and I have the sa- that you'd have the same mind and the same judgment, because Chloe tells me that you guys are having some fighting. And you imagine all the heads turning... Chloe, for crying out loud, what do you tell them, Paul, about the problems that are going on here? Just imagine that scene as that's just being announced before the whole church. And Chloe says, you guys are fighting back and forth. And he goes on and expresses it more in verses 12 through 17. Here's some of you saying that you're a Peter and following Paul and following Apollos and I follow Christ. I hear you've got all these divisions and arguing going on and saying that you're following various people and all of that. And so this becomes the the big key and the big thought of the letter is that what he is going to do in the whole of this letter is write to them in such a way to get them to understand why they need to agree, why there needs to be no divisions among you, why they need to have the same mind and the same judgment and the same purpose and the same way of thinking. And so this becomes the key. How is Paul going to solve the divisions and the fighting that is going on among them? And that's what you will notice are these great pictures that are found in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And I want to show some of these great pictures to you as we'll kind of move through these these great images. After telling them in verses verses 10 through 17 to stop identifying with these humans, don't elevate humans, don't say I am of Paul or I am of Peter or of Apollos or anything like that. Notice some of the pictures that he describes about what they are supposed to be and do. For example, look at chapter 1, verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Notice that that is a a central statement here. He says, God has come along, and what he has done is he has made the things that we would think are really important and made them nothing. Now, why would God do that? So that no human being would ever boast in themselves. No one would ever say, you know, look at me. Instead, he says, so that everybody who would ever boast would boast in the Lord. The big idea that the Apostle Paul is going to put forward in this letter is the title of the lesson. It's not about me. And everything that we see the Corinthians doing boils down to the problem of they are thinking about themselves. They are thinking it is about themselves and how it affects them. And they are not thinking about how does this affect God or how does it affect one another. And so his beginning premise, God has made things that are high. He's made them nothing because he wants to make sure 
that anyone who would ever come to the Lord or anyone who would ever live or anything that was ever created would recognize, just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now watch how Paul exemplifies that in his own life. I talked about chapter breaks. Annoying right here. Here's one of them. Chapter, we, we stop right there. Chapter 2, verse 1, he continues. And, can I just stop and say from Sunday morning, you see, when you have an and right in the middle of a chapter break, why did the chapter break go right there? It's and. <laughs> and. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? Verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, now when I came to you, you remember how I came to you. I didn't come to you with fancy words. I didn't try to put on a show. It wasn't about being a great orator and wowing you with entertainment and great speech and illustrations and making it about myself. In fact, he says, I did the opposite. I came to you in weakness and in fear and trembling. And you want to know why I came to you like that? And I didn't try to wow you and I didn't try to give you special words and be a great orator and make you think, oh, wow, Paul, he is such an amazing teacher. But instead, I expose my weaknesses and my fear and my trembling to you. Verse 5, so that you would not put your faith in people, but that you put it in the power of God. I wanted to make sure that you were not elevating people, which is what he said in chapter 1, what was going on. I love Peter and Apollos and Paul. And he says, now I came to you so that you wouldn't do that. The whole way I present the gospel to you was so that the emphasis would never be on the human, but would always be on the word of God. If I could do like a whole separate side sermon, I won't, don't, don't worry. But if I could do a whole separate side sermon, that should be a really big deal today. And friends, as Christians, that's what we ought to be concerned about is not how wonderfully somebody can run words together and have stage presence, but is it the power of the word of God that's on display? It should be nothing about how well somebody can say it, but it should be trying to deflect that so that you see the word of God and the power of God. That's what the job should be. Here's what God says. Who cares about me? I'm not important. Here's what God says. Because that's what Paul says he did. Here's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says, I came to you in such a way so that you absolutely would not think of me like that. I wanted you to put your faith in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men. Notice how he pushes that on a little bit in chapter 3 and in verse 1. Because he now describes their condition and their problem. And he's going to contrast that with with what they ought to be. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He says, here's the problem. You guys are not spiritually mature. 
When you're fighting and having disagreements and divisions and arguing, and you're not united in the same mind and the same purpose and the same way of thinking, he says, do you know what that reveals? He says, you're not spiritual. You're still spiritually immature. I want to come and give you meat, and I want to give you this solid food. But he says, instead, I've got to treat you like infants in Christ. That's what verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food. I'm trying to cause you to grow. Notice verse 3, for you are still in the flesh. Why? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving as a mere human or only in a human way? He says, you know what this reflects? shows you haven't been transformed. When we make our lives the things of God, our spiritual activities, our worship gatherings, or whatever it is about us, he says you're not spiritual. He says, in fact, it reveals that you're still in the flesh, still behaving in a human way. You're not thinking in spiritual terms. Now notice how he draws the contrast. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Now I would like for you to stop and before you read on, just think, how would you answer that? What then is Apollos? Well, from everything we can tell in the book of Acts, he's a very good teacher of God's word. He's called eloquent. He's called a teacher. He's called somebody that's very valuable in the kingdom of God. And let's ask the question of Paul. What would you say of the Apostle Paul? Well, we could say all kinds of great things about the Apostle Paul. I mean, he is to be listened to. He carries the authority of Christ. Whatever he says goes. If we're going to have an echelon, if we're going to have pedestals to put people on, I think we should put Paul on the pedestal. And notice when Paul asks the question, now what is Apollos and what is Paul? His answer is not, we are apostles or we are important people or we are teachers of the gospel or we are messengers sent from God and that's why you need to listen to us. Well, verse 5. Servants, through whom you believed as the Lord has assigned you. Who is Paul? He goes, I'm just a servant. I'm not anything. I'm just a servant of God. And it's through my work you believed. In fact, he pushes that along even further. Verse 6, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters, do you color in your Bible yet? Underline is anything. Neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. Wow. But only God who gives the increase. Do you see what he's doing is he's forming this focus around stop thinking about yourself. You think you're so important. You think it's all about you. You're elevating humans. 
We're only to boast in the Lord. God has taken the high things and made them low so that no one would boast in themselves or boast in any human being whatsoever that our boast would only be in the Lord Jesus. Who is Paul? Just a servant. All I did was I planted. Who is Apollos? He's just a servant. What did he do? He just watered. And the one who plants and the one who waters is absolutely nothing. God is the one who gives the growth. You see how he's trying to drive to the focus of it's not about us. It's not about me. It is everything about God. We are simply servants. Friends, this mindset is what is critical for there to not be divisions among us, quarreling and fighting among us, any kind of maliciousness, slander, problems. Um, can I use some of our terms? Cold shoulder, sitting on the other side of the building. You know, you stay on your side, I stay on my side. Uh, I don't like that person, so we just kind of keep our head down or only say, okay, hi, and keep moving. Those kinds of things happen because we're focused on ourselves. This is what Paul is moving toward in, in this letter. The reason why there's divisions and fighting, why there's difficulties, why there's tension, why those things come up, is because we make it about ourselves. And friends, if the Apostle Paul says, I am nothing more than a servant, then friends, how should we think of ourselves? If Paul, who has every right to stand up and say, do you know who I am? <laughs> if anybody has the authority to pin the paper and say, do you understand who I am? He goes, "Here's understand who I am, just a servant. I'm nothing. One who plants, one who waters, nothing. God is the one that gets the glory. Friends, when it comes to our gatherings, elders are nothing but servants. Deacons are nothing but servants. In fact, that's what that word means. They're just servants. They're not in authority or a position. It's, it's servants. Preachers are not anything. We're just servants. Nobody is anything. And when we ever come across and think, well, I'm somebody who should have a say. I should have a vote. Don't you know who I am? I am somebody of influence. I give a lot of money or I know a lot of things or I have great maturity or whatever it is. I have family connections or whatever we use. As if those things matter. Here's Paul going, that doesn't matter. Who do you think you are? We're nothing before God. We're simply servants. It's not about us. It is about God. Any success we have is because of God. The power belongs to God. The success belongs to God. It is about Him and His Word. It is not about us. In fact, notice the picture as he keeps going with that. In verse 5, he says that we're just servants. Look at what he says in verse 9. What does he say we are? We're just workers. <laughs> For we are God's fellow workers. That's it. 
So notice the images he's putting forward. We're just servants. God gets to glory. We're just workers. We're just working here. We're just doing the job that God has given us to do. In fact, in verse 10, he'll say, It's by the grace of God that I'm able to do this work, that I'm able to do this skill and build what God has called me to do in planting these churches and reaching the laws and teaching. It's by the grace of God. I'm just a worker. Do not elevate me. Notice the third picture he gives in verse 16 when he says, Do you not know that you, and that's a plural, you, you all, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Now he says, let me now put it back on you. Here's Paul saying, I'm a servant. I'm just a worker. And do you understand who we are together? We're supposed to be the temple of God. Now watch what he does with that. Verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. You are that temple. You see the setup of what he's doing to try to get rid of divisions and quarreling and fighting? Have this mindset. Follow Paul's example. Don't elevate humans. We're simply servants. We're simply workers by the grace of God. We are nothing and God is everything. It's not about us. And then he goes further and says, have a vision of who we are. We are God's temple. And then he says this, and do you know that anyone who chooses to destroy God's temple, what is God going to do to them? You see, when we're causing the fights and the quarreling, And the back talk and the slander and running the difficulties behind the lines and the undercurrents underneath the group and causing divisions and problems. We're destroying God's temple is how Paul pictures it. We're destroying the work. And God says that person will be destroyed by God. I'd like for you to think about the weight of that for a little bit. That statement strikes me. It strikes me strongly because I just think of how many times through various experiences, through people I know or churches I've either been a part of or groups that I have some kind of ties to. And you can probably think the same way as me. How often you can think of how many times there have been people who have destroyed God's temple in that way because they've made it about themselves. What they've done is they are hurting other Christians because they want to get their way, because they don't see themselves as just servants. They don't just see themselves as fellow workers. They think it's about them. And in the process of thinking of it's about them, it's causing divisions, it's causing quarrels, it's causing fighting, it's causing rifts, it's causing dissensions, it's causing words to be said that ought not to be said. That we're supposed to be the family of God. And I would submit to you how careful we ought to be because how often that has happened in people standing under the banner of truth and saying, well, I have the truth and have destroyed the faith of people in the process. We need to be awfully careful because here Paul says something very strong. 
Whoever destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. Those are serious words. There are going to be a lot of people held in account for what they did among the Lord's body. How they treated people and how they tried to push their agendas and how they tried to put themselves forward. When here Paul says, you know how we thought of ourselves? We're just servants. We're just workers. The one who boasts is supposed to boast in the Lord, not himself. In fact, if we hadn't seen it yet, go to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul wants to make sure you didn't miss it. This is how one should regard us. What do you think he's going to say? Servants of Christ. (laughs) If you haven't seen it strong enough for the first three chapters, let's say it again. Here's how I want you to think of me. I'm just a servant. And then he goes on. I'm just a steward. I'm just a caretaker of the mysteries of God. I'm not anything. This is how you should regard us. So after kind of popping them and saying, listen, don't destroy God's temple. Stop thinking highly of yourselves and look at how you should think of us. Here's what I want you to think of us. We're just servants and caretakers here. That's the model. That's who we are. That's how we're to operate together as the family of God. That's what we're supposed to look like in the body of Christ. We're supposed to be that family that works together in that kind of way. And that we would think of ourselves in that way. In fact, as we round out chapter 4, you'll notice like in chapter 4 and verse 9 where he says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as what? Last of all. Hey, guess what? That's exactly what being a follower of Jesus is all about. Paul is saying, you need to be walking in my steps. We make ourselves last of all. God has put us on display as last. Be last. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about God and God getting the glory. Even again in verse 13, we have become and are still what? The rock stars of the universe? No, the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. We are last. We are last. We are last. It's not about us. Think about how the rest of the book flows off of those four chapters. As he sets forward the statement, you need to agree. You need to all get along. There should be no divisions among you. I want you to be of the same mind and the same way of thinking, have the same judgment. And then he uses himself as an example. We're just servants. We're just workers. Don't hold us in high regard. We're just caretakers. We're the scum of the world. We are exhibited as last of all. Have that very mind. You see what we did as apostles. And now you have in chapters 5 to the end of the book, what does he now go through and talk about? All the problems that they have. Why do you think they had all these problems? Why do you think they're having all of these divisions? Why do you think they're having collision chapter after chapter after chapter? Because people are making it about themselves. I'll walk through them with you really quickly to get a sense of that very idea. Chapter 5, you probably know chapter 5 pretty well. Here is this glorification of sexual immorality in the church. What's going on? Somebody's making it all about them. 
Well, here's everybody glorifying, and well, here's so-and-so who's got his father's wife, and we think that's great. Nobody has a regard for what does God say about that, what is God's will. It's all about what we want to do. Friends, that is the biggest danger that we, we face, is that we approach God and we just do what we want to do. We will do what we think is best. We will do what we like. Here's Paul going, here's your problem. Here's why you have this problem in the church is you don't understand the holiness that you are supposed to possess. And that's what he describes as you get to the end of chapter 5, as he describes this holiness that is supposed to exist as the people of God. Chapter 6, what's going on in the beginning of chapter 6? They're suing each other. They're taking each other to court. Now why would they be doing that? Same problem. It's all about me. They're very self-focused and self-centered. In fact, notice how Paul combats that as well. In verse 7 of chapter 6, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? Why would you give that advice? Because it's not about me. He goes, just suffer wrong. Just be defrauded. Why are you suing your brother or your sister? Why would you take them to court? Just be defrauded. Just be wronged. Think about how verses 9 through 11 fit in that. Those are three verses we have taken out of context. Do you not know that those uh, who are unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And they're sexually immoral, adulterers, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, all the way through there. Why has he put that right here with the whole suing people part? It's kind of jarring and out of place, doesn't it seem? Why do that? Well, notice what he gets to there at the end of verse 11. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. What's the point? You're supposed to be different. You don't come to Christ and enter into the body of Christ and still keep thinking about yourself. That's a worldly way of thinking. That's what he said in chapter 3. When you have divisions and fighting with one another, what does that show? You're not spiritual. You haven't made the transformation. You haven't shown that you are washed and justified and sanctified. You're showing us that you're still worldly. And so he lays that out to them. Don't you understand that you can't be suing one another? How about the end of chapter of chapter 6 and fleeing the sexual immorality? Here they think sexual immorality is all going to be fine, right? But notice the same pictures given at the end of verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Or if I could say it the way I've been saying it all night so far, it's not about you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You see the consistent message he's getting to them again and again and again. It's not about you. It's about God. You belong to God. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know that you've been transformed? Don't you know that you can't make this about yourself? It's all about God. Chapter 7. Marriage. I think we could all answer this question pretty easily. Why do a lot of marriages suffer problems? What's usually happening? Happening. Make it all about me. Right? Selfishness again. It's all about me. It's what I want. It's what I desire the way I want things to go. And marriage becomes a problem. Oh, guess what? They were having marriage problems as well that has to also be dealt with. 
Notice the same principle is laid out here in chapter 7. Look at verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What did he just say? Is it about you? Nope. If you're talking to him, it's about her. And if you're talking to her, it's about him. Same message. He says, you got the marriage problems? Here's how we solve that. It's not about you. That'll solve that. It's about God. It's about the other person. It's about making ourselves last, that here we are serving others as he goes about describing all that. And this is the same thing that happens as you get like to verse 10. He talks about divorce. Do not divorce. We live in a world right now that's all about, well, if we don't get along, if we don't like each other, things aren't going very well, we'll just get a divorce. Here he says, don't divorce. Simple message. It's not about you. Don't divorce. Work it out. Work through it. Put God first, put the other person first. But that's the picture that chapter 7 is getting at as he goes through all of these marriage rules and marriage laws. Let's talk about chapters 8 through 10. In chapters 8 through 10, you have this, this section is often what we describe as meat or food sacrifice to idols, right? Here are these Corinthians, and they have these liberties. They say, we know that there's not really these idols and these false gods, and so it's okay for us to do the things that we're doing, because we know what we're really doing. That's ultimately the summary of that. One of my favorite lines in this book is in verse 2 of chapter 8. Notice what he says as he starts this one off. If anyone imagines that he knows something... He does not yet know as he ought to know. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh, you think you know something. The moment you think you've got it all figured out, you don't know anything. When I was in college, I thought I knew everything. Now I'm older and I realize I know nothing. (laughs) That's spiritual maturity is what he describes right here. He says, you guys think you have it all worked out and you possess all this knowledge, all... You know all these things. Here Paul says, you don't know anything if you think that. If you think you've got all of that spiritual knowledge, you've got it all worked out, you don't know anything. What a great introduction that he has to that. Here's what he wants them to see, chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. Now listen to it. From whom are all things and for whom we exist. The one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Why do we exist? For ourselves? No. Consistent message again and again. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. And that's the message that he gets that you can see in chapter 8 verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, what will I do? Tell them, aren't you smarter than that? Don't you know that gods aren't anything? No. If it's going to make my brother stumble, I will not eat you. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about him. It's about his faith. It's about me doing what's best for the other person. Not me getting my way. Not me getting what I want. Not me winning the argument. Not me being right. It's about doing what's best of the other person. 
I got to move on. Chapter 11. I'd love to do the head covering with you. We had another 45 minutes if you want. I did a whole lesson on that on the website and went through that. I'd like to point out, though, the head covering is part of the point, but really the point of that, that section is about gender roles. And this chapter, that section is perhaps more important than ever before with all of the issues going on with gender roles right now and gender confusion and all of that. This really is a very timely text for that. Another sermon, another time. There you go with that. Same thing, though, about putting others ahead of ourselves and understanding that in that section. Also here in the Lord's Supper section, chapter 11, verses 17 to the end of that chapter. Remember what they were doing at the Lord's Supper? Making it all about them. We're coming and we're eating. Are we waiting for anybody? No, we're not waiting for anybody. What do we do? Make it a common meal. We're eating. Everybody's just having a heyday with it. Nobody's thinking about anybody else. And nobody's thinking about what is this supposed to represent before God. Same problem going on the same selfish thinking. It was all about themselves. That's why they're doing the things they're doing in the way that they are abusing the, the, the Lord's Supper. Chapters 12 through 14, same idea. Here's three chapters about miraculous spiritual gifts. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. Do you know what's right in the middle of solving the problems of all of the things that they're doing with miraculous spiritual gifts? Chapter 13, a thing you know really well, love. Because what were they doing? Well, you know, my gift of tongues is way more important than your gift of prophecy. And see, my gifts are better than your gifts, and their gifts are better than their gifts, and they're having a whole competition about who has better gifts, who's more important. And so in the middle of a discussion about these miraculous spiritual gifts, how they ought to be used and how they ought to be understood, he has this whole section on love. And we take that chapter out of its context, but think about how he's teaching on love in the middle of their competition and arguing over gifts. And then listen to what he says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy your boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. And watch this one in the middle there of verse 5. Love does not insist on its own way. It's the message of the book. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never ends. What's missing is love. What they are doing lacks love. Love does not behave in that way. Love recognizes, true love recognizes that it's not about me. Chapter 15, similarly. What is life essentially all about? What is our great hope? What are we looking forward to? Resurrection. What a great ending to this section of, of writing. And think about the order by which he addresses their questions. And you come to a great finale here. We start talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what we're longing for. This is what life is all about. This is what we are waiting for. Everything is looking for the coming of our Lord. We don't live for this life. We live for the coming life. That's what changes everything about how we live. It doesn't have to be about me right now in this life because I have a, an eternity to look forward to. 
Who cares if we're defrauded? What does it matter if we're last in this life? What does it matter if we go through things in this world? This is not what our hope is built on. We're looking forward to a better country. We're looking forward to an eternal home. That's the hope that we have. And if there is not that hope, if there is no resurrection, we are the most pitied people of all, is how Paul would argue. It changes everything about how we live. The resurrection is why we can sacrifice. It's why we can give ourselves. It's why we can say, I will not be first, that I will defer to others, that I will allow them to be first. And chapter 16 does does the exact same thing. Notice verse um, 13 of chapter 16. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in what? Love. Let everything you do be done in love. I want to end the lesson with just three very fast messages that we're seeing then from this book. This overriding message is it's not about us. And number one, there will always be strife, jealousy, divisions, problems, conflicts, undercurrents of difficulties, slandering, gossip, and all of the like if it's all about me. We will never be of the same mind and the same purpose and the same way of thinking if all of us come together as the body of Christ with the attitude, it's all about me. That's the old in my way. We'll never get there. And friends, you've probably seen it. It's pretty amazing Even if only one person comes in that way, that wrecks an awful lot. It just becomes this vortex of problems. We must all come together in the same mind and say, this is about God and it is about serving one another in whatever role and capacity we have, whether we are teachers or preachers or deacons or elders or whatever role that we have that we help and we come to work together, we are only servants, we are only workers, we are just simply here as caretakers for what God has given us. That's it. Nobody needs my say in my opinion. Yeah, I don't get a big weigh in and go, well, you know, the preacher hasn't weighed in yet. We're all together. We're all just servants together. And the moment anybody thinks more of themselves than that is when problems come. The moment any person thinks any more highly of themselves than I'm just a servant here. Divisions, strife, problems, backbiting, gossip, all come into play. And you can probably think in your lifetime of places that you know or people that you know or places that you've seen, for that is the truth. Where attitudes and egos could not be set aside, faith was hurt, churches were split, divisions occurred damage of faith happened. And God said, don't destroy my people. Don't destroy the temple of God. So number one, there will always be that kind of problem 
if we make it about us. Number two, our faith can never rest in people. Our faith cannot rest in people. I love that Paul says, here's Paul the apostle. And he says, don't put your faith in me. Put your faith in God. Put your faith in God. And I want us to consider why it is so important for us to put our faith in God. Because everybody else is going to fail you. Your friends will let you down. Your family will fail you. Your elders will fail you. Your preacher will fail you. Everybody in your life at some point is going to let you down. There is only one person who will never, ever, ever let you down. God. Everybody else will. And as soon as we put the weight of our hope and the weight of our faith on a person that's going to get dashed, I'm going to let you down. Dave's going to let you down. People you respect here, they're going to let you down. Your wife will let you down. Your husband will let you down. Your parents will let you down. Your children will let you down. Your job's going to let you down. Your co-workers will let you down. Everybody's going to do that. Don't put your hope and your dreams and your desires and your faith in any of those things. Paul says, that's why I preach to you the way I do. Because I wanted your faith to just rest on one simple thing. What does God say? Let your hope and faith rest on that alone and not anybody else. We're all just servants. Our hope and our faith is in God. Finally, number three, that we would think spiritually. I think this is hard to do in our world. Our world tells us right now, promote yourself. It's all about you. Look at me. Look at me. Social media encourages us. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. Look, I'm eating lasagna. Hey, look at me. I mean, we're in a world right now that just revolves around, look at me. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at all this. Look, 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 look. And we're just being consumed with the self-promotion idea. It's all about me. The world spins around me. Everybody pay attention to me. And we have to be on total guard against that. That is not spiritual thinking. It is not about us. And we need to be so careful that we are not being sucked into that kind of thinking. We aren't using our devices and using our teachings and using our words and using our life so that people will just pay attention to us. When people see us, what should we hope that they see? Christ in us. Not us. I love Colossians 3, the first couple of verses. That your life is hidden in Christ. People don't see us. Our life is hidden. People just see Jesus. We become that light. We show Jesus to the world. It is not about us. Rather, we need to be filled with humility. We need to recognize that everything that we do is completely about God. Because as we talked about from Hebrews, the only reason the world keeps spinning is because Jesus says so. And the only reason we're still breathing is because God says so. The only reason things continue on is because God says so. 
And we're only here by the grace of God, and we are here as the people of God only by the grace of God. And I'm only a preacher of the gospel by the grace of God, and we are only servants by the grace of God. We have absolutely nothing but the grace of God on our side. It's not about me. It is everything about God. We'll sing invitation song now. We invite you to come to Jesus and to think about how it's all about Him. And that we would live our lives completely so that it is all about Him. And may we repent of the times in our lives where we have made it about us. May we repent from the times where we have made things be about us having a say or having our way or pushing our way forward, whether it be amongst a body of believers or in our families or in any kind of sphere of influence that we may have. It's not about us. In whatever role we possess, let everybody see Jesus in what we do. Are you ready to come to Jesus? Won't you come down while we stand and while we stand?